Greetings, brothers and sisters in Christ. Welcome to another episode of the Innocence Redeemed Podcast. I'm your host, Ray Bergman, and the title of today's podcast is called Understanding Spiritual Gifts. In the time we now find ourselves in, many may be in a wilderness wondering what they're supposed to be doing. They may feel that they don't have a purpose if they've lost a job or if they feel they have been called to minister in some way. They aren't sure where to best apply themselves. And I experienced this very question when I was asking the Lord while I was in my wilderness what I needed to do. And I needed to understand where I was best to apply myself. I had been praying on it for a while, and I was led to take a spiritual gift test to see where my strengths were. So today I'd like to take some time to go over the spiritual gifts and how many are called to serve. And I found this to be an important topic to discuss, being that I mentioned taking a spiritual gift test in the last podcast I did about being called to ministry. Now, you don't have to be necessarily called to do formal ministry work to make use of a spiritual gift, but it is helpful to know for several reasons. Now, some may question the reasons for needing to know. After the last podcast I did, it just so happens that I found an excellent point-by-point explanation, um, which is written by Dr. Larry Gilbert of Ephesians 4 Ministries, who has written and talked about spiritual gifts for over 40 years. Now, the eight points Dr. Gilbert lays out here on knowing what your spiritual gift is and how it adds purpose to your life and what God is calling you to do are actually rather insightful. So I felt it was a great way to share this with you all before we get into what scripture says. And then later on, um, I'll go over an explanation of the spiritual gifts. I will now go through each one of the reasons for knowing them point by point. Number one, knowing your spiritual gift helps you understand God's will for your life. Spiritual gifts are tools given by God for doing the work of the ministry. Different people are given gifts and handle different tasks. Thus, if God gives you a hammer, he wants you to drive nails, not cut boards. If he wanted you to cut boards, he would have given you a saw rather than a hammer. Understanding your gift in light of this principle will enable you to make decisions as to where to serve God, how to serve God, and in many cases, help choose your occupation. But, In all cases, it will help you set priorities for your life. What God has called you to do, he has gifted you to do. And what he has gifted you to do, he has called you to do. Number two, knowing your spiritual gift helps you understand how the Holy Spirit works through you. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 9 says, For we are both God's workers, and you are God's field. You are God's building. This division of labor is simply stated, God will not do what he has called you to do, and you cannot do what God has reserved for himself to do. God works through his children to accomplish his works here on earth. When you use the spiritual gift given to you by God, allowing God to minister through you, you literally become a co-laborer with God. Number three, knowing your spiritual gift helps you know what God has not called you to do. The more we understand what God has not called us to do, the more we understand what he has called us to do. Recognizing what you are not supposed to do can be as important as recognizing what you are to do. If you realize God has not given you the gift of mercy, you can easily turn down a position that would require that gift, without worrying that you might miss God's call. The same is true with all of the gifts. Number four. If the truth were known, many active church workers have no business doing what they're doing. While this may not be the case for all, many are only doing it because the pastor asked them to. A committee elected them or they feel obligated to do something, but are not serving where they're gifted. Christians have many reasons for serving in areas that keep them busy, but not fulfilled. It boils down to this. 
Many serve out of duty instead of God's calling. When you use the gift God has given you, you will be able to operate at maximum fulfillment with minimum frustration and will find the true area for which God has gifted you. Number five, knowing your spiritual gift fills a deep inner need. Have you ever visited a hospital? You may have met the mean old nurse who bites your head off every time you sit on a patient's bed. But overall, a hospital is a place where you find a staff of people who are getting more fulfillment out of life than the average person. And why is that? Because they are in the people-serving business. They are willing to wrap their lives in the lives of other people. They are meeting an inner need that God has put into the souls of all men, Christians and non-Christians alike. Your spiritual gift will complement this inner need God has placed in you. Number six, knowing your spiritual gift builds unity among Christians. When you understand the characteristics of spiritual gifts, you see how gifts influence your desires, motivation, and your behavior. You will begin to realize why other people do not always see things or react to situations the same as you would. It's all part of God's plan. The different gifts complement each other. Understanding spiritual gifts will prevent you from imposing your gift or lifestyle on others and will help you recognize God's individual calling for your life. Unfortunately, there's too many Christians that are living God's will for someone else's life rather than their own. Number seven, knowing your spiritual gift equips you to fulfill God's purpose for your life. God has created each one of us uniquely different. He has given us different gifts, talents, personalities, temperaments, and passions to outfit us to accomplish his unique purpose for each of us. True significance in life comes when we discover that purpose and calling and use them in our careers and ministries. It has been said, career is what you are paid for. Calling is what you are made for. And you know, I'll just add in there, you know, that's true because how many of us have, you know, had jobs where we absolutely can't stand it and we know it's like this is not what we're cut out for, but yet we do it because it's a paycheck. You know, when you're doing something that's spiritually fulfilling, you enjoy doing it because it's what you're meant to do. You know, you, you might have heard it in the secular work world that people who found their true passion were often happy in doing what they were doing, but there were a lot of others who were just plain miserable. They hated their job and as a result, you know, it starts to affect your personal life, and then you don't like yourself either. And, you know, that can cause depression. So that's another point of finding your spiritual gift to understand why it's so important. Because if you don't know yourself, how can you accept yourself? And that brings us to point number eight. Knowing your spiritual gift adds to your self-acceptance. Recently, a man who had just discovered his spiritual gift said, I love to teach, and I teach every chance I get. I've never done anything in the church but teach. I really don't want to do anything but teach, nor do I intend to do anything but teach. If I go for any period of time without teaching, I become irritable and hard to get along with. I've taught for years, but you know something? For the first time in my life, I don't feel guilty because I'm not a pastor. Undue guilt is the greatest weapon Satan uses to keep Christians from living up to their potential. Many believers consider themselves unspiritual because they can't live up to someone else's expectations. Trying to live up to others' expectations of you always equals failure and your expectations are not in line with what God expects of you. Think of the greatest Christian you know. Now consider this. God has called you to do what this person cannot do. Your God has given you a special endowment that suits you perfectly for your special position on his quote-unquote team. Your challenge is to do as commanded in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 6. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you and equipped you. 
Now, in addition to the points I just got done reading, it's important that we also look into what the Word says about spiritual gifts before we get into an understanding of each spiritual gift on its own. Let's take a listen to 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 13, which lay out the spiritual gifts and how they all serve a purpose in the same body. The Book of 1 Corinthians, Chapter 12, Spiritual Gifts Now, dear brothers and sisters, regarding your question about the special abilities the Spirit gives us, I don't want you to misunderstand this. You know that when you were still pagans, you were led astray and swept along in worshiping speechless idols. So I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. To one person, the Spirit gives the ability to give wise advice. To another, the same Spirit gives a message of special knowledge. The same Spirit gives great faith to another, and to someone else, the one Spirit gives the gift of healing. He gives one person the power to perform miracles, and another the ability to prophesy. He gives someone else the ability to discern whether a message is from the Spirit of God or from another Spirit. Still another person is given the ability to speak in unknown languages, while another is given the ability to interpret what is being said. It is the one and only Spirit who distributes all these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. One body with many parts. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by one Spirit, and we all share the same Spirit. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I am not a part of the body because I am not a hand, that does not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, I am not part of the body because I am not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if your whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where He wants it. How strange a body would be if it had only one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary, and the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen, while the more honorable parts do not require this special care. So God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony among the members, so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. Here are some of the parts God has appointed for the church. First are apostles, second are prophets, third are teachers, 
than those who do miracles, those who have the gift of healing, those who can help others, those who have the gift of leadership, those who speak in unknown languages. Are we all apostles? Are we all prophets? Are we all teachers? Do we all have the power to do miracles? Do we all have the gift of healing? Do we all have the ability to speak in unknown languages? Do we all have the ability to interpret unknown languages? Of course not. So you should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts. But now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. The Book of 1 Corinthians, Chapter 13 Love is the greatest. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Now, our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when full understanding comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, as in a cloudy mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. Three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Without love, you can't have any of the other spiritual gifts, because true love is from God. And you can't serve others without having love and mercy in your heart first. You are serving the Lord by putting your needs last for the sake of others. It's being selfless when serving others with the aforementioned gifts, which I will now go over. I'm going to go over each of these one by one, giving a brief synopsis just like I did in the beginning when I presented the eight points on why knowing your spiritual gift is important in having purpose. And once again, these points were written by Dr. Gilbert, not myself. One thing before I go over these is that it's important to understand when you take a spiritual gift test that some folks may score high in more than one area, but when that happens, it gives you an even stronger belief on what your calling is. Now, these are the main ones, but there are others, as you just heard in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The Greek word, euangelistes, means to proclaim glad tidings, a messenger of good. It denotes a preacher or proclaimer of the gospel. The evangelist 
can be a preacher who stands before a crowd imploring people to be saved or perhaps an individual sitting across from someone on a plane or in a living room, encouraging him or her to accept Christ. The person with the gift of evangelism usually is outgoing and personable. He or she has mastered a technique of paying compliments to every stranger and asking lifestyle questions such as, where do you work? How many children do you have? In what part of the country were you raised? When not talking with people about their soul's relationship with Jesus Christ, the evangelist is often quiet. Sometimes the evangelist turns off other Christians and has even lost people because of the sales pitch, quote-unquote, used. Some consider him or her akin to the used car salesperson or vacuum cleaner salesperson. However, much of that perception is because of how others view the evangelist rather than as a result of the evangelist's own motives or desires. Many new Christians are almost forced to win souls. Sometimes they are thrust into situations they are not yet equipped to handle. Before accepting full responsibility to be confrontational soul winners, evangelists need to develop some maturity in the Christian walk. This would prevent young Christians with areas that need correction from hurting their witness before those who do not know their past and have not seen the changes in their lives. The solution is to pair young Christians in ministry opportunities with seasoned, mature Christians who have the gift of evangelism. The young evangelist will learn much about presenting the gospel by watching the seasoned evangelist minister to the lost. Number two, the gift of prophecy. Most people think of a prophet as someone God uses as a foreteller, such as the prophets of the Old Testament. Today's New Testament prophet is a foreteller, one who tells or quote-unquote speaks forth the mind of God, boldly preaching, speaking, and teaching God's word. The Greek word prophetes means a prophet, a poet, that is, a person gifted explaining divine truth. While the prophet who is called to preach tends to focus on pointing out sin and explaining what is wrong, this gift goes beyond the call to expose other people's sin and teach the truths of God's word, to actually doing something in daily life to use the gift, to expose injustice and expound the truth, and to lead people to make changes that are biblically based. As the prophet, quote-unquote, tells forth God's word, knowing what God's word teaches and expects of us, the prophet also leads others to make a difference in today's society and world. It's important to understand that people will view the prophet ministry with an open mind or a closed mind. Open-minded people will accept the prophet's teaching. They may become very uncomfortable sitting under a prophet's preaching because the truth can hurt, but they are willing to do something about it. The next time the preacher preaches, these people come back listening. Closed-minded people will rebel or reject the prophet's message. I've seen some people get so mad about what is preached, they become red in the face. These people will never grow as long as they are not willing to learn, listen, or change. The bluntness of the prophet's message will stir some people to take action and others to get mad. Prophets may find it difficult to pastor a church for any length of time unless they're able to temper the message with a loving spirit and possibly have the gift of shepherding as well as prophecy. One of the biggest challenges for prophets is to keep a spirit of love. When prophets keep tender, loving hearts, they will be blessings to their homes, their churches, and to individual believers, making a real impact on their spirituality. In order to do this, prophets must always speak the truth in love, as according to Ephesians 4, verse 15. If you are a prophet, you have the spirit-given capacity and desire to serve God by boldly and fearlessly proclaiming God's truth. 
You are the person with discernment and have the goal of making people aware of the sin in their lives so they will repent. You have the ability to easily spot what is wrong and often have to look to find something right. Your concern over the sinful condition of your loved ones drive you to pray and sometimes weep over them. Because of this, you take every opportunity to share the message of God's word. You are a person with a strong sense of duty who speaks out publicly about wrongdoing in any environment, whether home, church, school, or the community. You will stand up for what is right as well as speak for those who are wronged. Number three, the teacher. The teacher is one who communicates knowledge, guides, makes known, or relays facts. The Christian with the gift of teaching is not the person we often think of as a teacher in the Sunday school class. The teacher is the scholar, the person who learns and teaches with more depth than the average Sunday school teacher. The teacher usually becomes a teacher of teachers, having the desire to go to great depths to research a project or a topic. There are two areas for which teachers live, learning and teaching, or writing, if teaching through the written medium. Teachers would rather gain knowledge than to eat, sleep, or do just about anything else. Students normally do not have the hunger for knowledge at the detailed level of a person with the gift of teaching. Secondly, the lessons must be practical, for the teacher will love knowledge, whether it is in practical form or not. The most effective teacher is the one who can teach more than average knowledge with more than average simplicity. We need gifted teachers to handle interpretation problems, deeper theology, and to teach those with other teaching gifts in a more complete manner. People with the gift of teaching do not necessarily have to teach the Bible to be a help to the church ministry. Teaching in such areas as education, business, finance, or computers, for that example, may greatly benefit some churches and schools. Remember that the scholarly teacher is only one of four teaching or communication gifts. The other three, the shepherd, the prophet, and the exhorter, usually have to rely on resources from the teacher in order to fulfill their responsibilities in the local church. The most common problems in connection with the teaching gift are those created by believers who have desires in other areas and find the teachers to be dull or too deep for their liking. Teachers tend to be heavy on details and light on application. The blessing is that the teachers can challenge us to learn more rather than being complacent with what knowledge we think we already have. Most teaching aid books, reference books, and commentaries are written by people who have the gift of teaching. Number four, the gift of exhortation. Exhorters often make the best counselors because they are willing to spend time with people and give them practical steps to solve their problems. They can also see the big picture from problem to solution. Exhorters are people of practical application, yet are very result-oriented. Everything they do must be done on a practical basis. They are not very interested in theology or doctrine, but in the practical aspects of the scriptures. This practicality comes from a desire to teach people how to solve problems and make the necessary changes to be a more mature Christian. And in parentheses, he has written, of course, they wish to be doctrinally sound, but that is not always their main emphasis. And I'm not sure about that because I have the gift of exhortation and I do care about putting the word into context when I teach it, so... I make sure that I study it, so, but that's also because I have also an area of a few different gifts. It's not just exhortation. But moving on, they have a strong belief that God's word has the answer for every problem. And well, in my opinion, yes, it does. You know, there, is, there is a word for every single thing that we go through, and that can be proven. 
Exhorters are also encouragers. Synonyms for exhort include such words as admonish, persuade, instigate, urge, and appeal. These words carry a sense of urgency. When exhorters instruct how to live and how to solve problems or to carry out God's work, they usually also encourage the listeners to get with it and put the plan to work. And that's the truth. Exhorters aim to present material that will enable the Holy Spirit to promote change in the student's life. They believe the responsibility of people with the teaching gifts is to take someone who was lost and help the person to become mature in Christ, beyond just engaging in class participation or meaningful discussions. Many teachers become bogged down with using these good teaching methods and making them the primary goals for the class. Exhorters use scripture as it applies to everyday living, not just Bible stories or Bible facts. Many teachers are guilty of teaching the Bible as a storybook. People know all about Jonah and the whale, the Garden of Eden, and the dimensions of the ark. When it comes to making life decisions, however, they don't know how to apply their knowledge. Exhorters teach beyond just how to win Bible quizzes on Sunday night, but to equip believers for the -the in-the-trenches realities of Wednesday morning and Tuesday evening. New Christians need to have basic practical Christian living taught to them. This is where exhorters help. By giving practical application to God's word and helping put the principles into practice. Whereas the prophet can challenge the Christian into living right, an exhorter can explain how to live right and encourage the person to employ tools for practical and successful living. Moving on to point five, the shepherd. Shepherds lead and feed, guard and protect, and oversee flocks. They coach and lead their teams. The main thing on their shepherd minds is the welfare of those in their care their sheep. They work under a pastor and are therefore an extension of the pastor and must oversee their part of the flock. The shepherd is not a jack of all and a master of none, but a jack of all and a master of one. Many times, the individual probably has another dominant speaking gift besides the gift of shepherding. Although many are strong evangelists or teachers or even exhorters, most pastors of large churches have a dominant gift of administration. While the shepherd's heartbeat is shepherding the flock God has given, the other dominant gift complements their ministry. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 suggests that if anyone is given the gift of shepherding, then he or she must also have the gift of teaching. If you are sure you do not have a teaching gift, then you can be sure God has not called you to the pastorate. A Sunday school teacher or small group leader, man or woman, is a shepherd the same as the pastor is a shepherd. Sunday school teachers are really pastoring small churches within a church. Their responsibility is to shepherd the class members. The position demands the gift. First, Corinthians 12, verse 11 says that when God gives gifts, he divides to, quote-unquote, every man severally as he will, end quote. Severally means according to one's own ability. God gives the gift of shepherding and puts one in a position where he or she can function according to God-given ability. Now, some may have the ability to care for 10 people, thus utilizing their gift in a capacity such as a Sunday school teacher or small group leader. On the other hand, God may give someone else the ability to care for hundreds, therefore allowing them to utilize their gift in the position of pastor. Number six, the gift of serving. The Greek word diakonia, or diakonia, not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, means to do service. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, the word is interpreted as ministration. Our word deacon comes from the same Greek word. Actually, the gift of serving 
is a combination of helps and ministering, two expressions of the same gift. The word helps is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, and ministering is mentioned in Romans chapter 12, verse 7. People with this gift enjoy manual projects. They are not kings. They do not even want to be kings. They are happy working behind the scenes. They are king makers. Servers are not people who believe that since they can do nothing else in the church, they must have the gift of serving. The attitude would belittle the gift and would be an insult to the person who has the gift of serving. There are no menial tasks in God's work. It is possible that more people have this gift than any other. Servers paint the walls, pick up the trash, sort the hymns, clean the baptistery, keep the nursery, bake the cakes, cook the meals, paint the signs, drive the bus, and a million and one other necessary tasks in the church. They can always be found late in the evening doing some seemingly small job, like fixing the public address speaker that didn't work last Sunday. They usually do not realize that their love for the Lord shows every time the doors of the church are open, especially if they oil the now quiet hinges that were noisy last week. If you are a server, you have the spirit-given capacity and desire to serve God by rendering practical help in both physical and spiritual matters. You are the person who meets the practical needs of fellow Christians and the church. Number seven, the gift of mercy. This is a big one. The Greek word elos, or eos, means to feel sympathy with or for others. People with this gift are comforters who enter into the grief or happiness of others, having the ability to show empathy. To show empathy goes beyond sympathy. Sympathy feels for others. Empathy feels with others. Empathizers emotionally go through what the victim goes through. They minister to the sick, the poor, the mentally challenged, the prisoners, the blind, the aged, the homeless, etc. They are willing to deal with people and minister to these people who have needs that most other people feel very uncomfortable working with. Mercy showers seem to always say the right thing at the right time. They are the ones people call first when they hurt because something bad happens, or when they feel great because of some good thing happening to them. When there is death, mercy showers are the first to be at the house holding someone's hand or fixing a meal. When there is a promotion on the job or a large amount of money comes in, mercy showers hug and jump up and down with the person. Mercy showers are generally not found teaching Sunday school or leading a group, since their personality is one of soft-spoken love. They are not usually leaders, since they would hurt too much if they had to scold someone or push to get the job done. People love mercy showers because of all the love they receive from them. Some people think of mercy showers as being weak or compromisers, but a mercy shower usually has some strong beliefs or principles. It's just that they do not like to hurt anyone's feelings, so they do not express them very often. Some people also have a tendency to use mercy showers since they are so easygoing. Mercy showers are full of prayer requests at any prayer meeting since they are close to those who are hurting. Since they are sympathetic, they tend not to bring the necessary changes into a person's life to correct the problems that require the counseling. The other alternative is to develop a list of people to whom they can refer people who need counseling for help. That way, they can offer sympathy and understanding and allow someone else to bring about the necessary changes. For example, if they were to encounter a person who has a problem because of the presence of known sin, it would be good for mercy showers to find prophets who can confront the sin or exhorters who can give steps to solving that problem. 
The team concept of counseling is to use gifted people where their gift will do the most good. Health workers, counselors, and other caregivers tend to be mercy showers by nature. They have a sincere desire to help people and the ability to sympathize and empathize with people, often putting themselves in the other person's shoes. Sometimes they are dragged down by taking other people's problems home with them. Mercy showers must build some barriers on their feelings and establish strong biblical principles to prevent Satan from using the gift as a stumbling block before the Holy Spirit can use it as a stepping stone. If you are a mercy shower, you have the Spirit-given capacity and desire to serve God by identifying with and comforting those who are in distress. You are the person who understands and comforts fellow Christians. Point number eight, the giver or the gift of giving. The Greek word metadidomi means to give over, to share, to give to, to impart. The important thing here is not to spiritualize and explain away this gift. Some say that this gift refers to giving of yourself and your time, that it doesn't really mean giving money or material resources. On the contrary, givers honestly feel that the best way they can give of themselves is to give of their material gain for the work of God. They feel that since God gave them the ability to make money, they should use it to give back to God and his work. Everyone should tithe, but the giver goes far beyond the tithe. The scriptures point out giving as one of the gifts in Romans chapter 12. The giver is encouraged to give in simplicity, as it refers to Romans chapter 12, verse 8. Most Christians with the gift of giving do so without fanfare and public recognition. In fact, givers usually do not wish for people to know whom they are or how much is given. Givers have the attitude that tithing is the outward evidence of an inward commitment. Tithing is not giving 10%. It's receiving 90%. You'll remember, guys, uh, Glenda mentioned that in the Call to Ministry podcast. It is a commandment for all Christians. The gift of giving starts where tithing ends. Givers would look with disapproval on the person who gives with the wrong motive. Giving to get, for example. Or trying to intimidate God into returning the monetary gift. They would not encourage giving up grocery money, but would agree with giving the money that was saved toward a new flat-screen TV for more urgent, worthy, or eternal purposes. Their motive for giving is always to further the work of God and to not show off, though some might think otherwise of them. In Acts chapter 4 verse 34 through Acts chapter 5 verse 10, there is a significant description of people who had the unusual opportunities to give. In the early church, Christian landowners often sold their property and other possessions and gave the proceeds to the church in order to care for those in need. There must be a distinction made between the gift of giving and the grace of giving. First realize that tithing and giving are responsibilities of every Christian. The tithe is the first fruits of our increase. It is God's and we should give it to him immediately. Luke chapter 6 verse 38 is for every Christian, not just those with the gift of giving. That is the grace of giving. Giving from a heart of love, allowing God to furnish the returns when we have given from a desire to help others and further his work. Many Christians in sheer desperation have given all they had trying to bail themselves out of a jam, only to see their efforts fail. You can't give yourself out of a financial jam, nor can you give your way to prosperity with that end as a motive. It's like borrowing to get out of debt. Givers must observe four guidelines. Number one, do not love riches. Number two, give for the right reason. Number three, make giving your reason for gaining wealth. Number four, Keep your spiritual life strong and consistent with God. 
If you are a giver, you have the spirit-given capacity and desire to serve God by giving of your material resources, far beyond the tithe, to further the work of God. You are the person who meets the financial needs of fellow Christians and church members. Number nine, the gift of administration. Now, administrators are the take-charge people who jump in and start giving orders when no one is in charge, and even sometimes when someone else is in charge. They put a plan on paper and start delegating responsibility. The committee or group reports back to them, and they work the whole scheme of the program together. If a program or event is scheduled, they almost instantly have a plan to carry it out. When followed, the plan usually makes the event more effective. Administrators usually have one of two leadership styles. One organizes things, events, or programs. The other organizes people and emphasizes personal relationships and leadership responsibilities. Sometimes they have to watch that they do not overstep their authority and expect the pastor or others in leadership to follow them. On the surface, they are extremely organized. If they organize things or events, they will usually organize details and have people carry them out. If they are prone to organizing people, they are not detail people, but rely on others to take care of the little things. They do not often admit to mistakes. They usually do not take time to explain to those under them why they are doing things. They just expect the job to get done. Their patience may wear thin when plans are not carried through as they laid them out. When things in the church become fragmented, administrators can harmonize the whole program if given a chance. As soon as a task is completed, they are already working on the next event and start giving the directions before others can even catch a breath. God has always had his leaders. Would the Israelites have left Egypt if they hadn't had Moses? Or would they have conquered the promised land without Joshua? Or would they have survived without Esther? God could have chosen a number of ways to lead his people, but he chose the same method for leading as he did for the rest of his work here on earth, men and women. Throughout history, God has always chosen his people for leading, whether it be Saul, David, Gideon, Nehemiah, Solomon, Deborah, Esther, and men like Paul. Some were good and some bad. If you are an administrator, you have the gift given capacity and desire to serve God by organizing, administering, promoting, and leading the various affairs of the church. You are the person who leads the church and its ministries. And my friends, those all said, that's the main spiritual gifts that I found important to cover here today. I'm going to put a link up on my blog for the spiritual gift test in the event that you're interested or looking for a site where you can go take the uh, spiritual gift test. And that said, that's all I have for you right now. Jesus bless you. Stay safe out there. Thank you for listening.